Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.4, The Fundamental Constitution of Carolina. Last time, we spent our time discussing those early years in the Carolina colony. We looked at why it was founded, by whom, when, and then took a peek at the first few years in the new colony. As I had said at the outset of our last episode, I am not planning on having a long, drawn-out series on Carolina as I did with Jamestown and New England. However, it is important that we get them up and onto their feet. Today, we are going to have the second and final episode in our Carolina series. Carolina is going to remain a part of our story moving forward, however, but there are other events that I want to move on to first. Before we can move on, we need to spend some serious time looking at the foundational documents of politics in the Carolina colony. Known as the Fundamental Constitution of Carolina, this would act as the basis for the government in the young colony. Our focus today is going to be threefold. First, we are going to look at the history of the document itself, including its basic structure. We are going to look at how it functioned in reality and its legacy as an actual government compact. Finally, we are going to spend some time looking at its place in both the history of the United States as well as its place in the Greater Enlightenment. The final of these three points is especially interesting considering that the primary author of the Constitution was a young John Locke, who will in short time become one of the giants of the Enlightenment era. More specifically, Locke's ideas and political philosophies are going to have a profound effect on the future of the United States. The Fundamental Constitution of Carolina is an early example of his work, so let's dive in and see what we can glean from it. First drafted in 1669, the Fundamental Constitution of Carolina was designed to be ready to go from the time the first colonists arrived in the colony. Among the proprietors, it was Anthony Cooper who first decided that the colony needed some kind of constitution beyond the grant that the king had previously given. There is nothing surprising about this as we have seen numerous charters appear in the colony by the time 1671 rolled around. Charters had become a part of the colonial American experience. In so many ways, the fundamental constitution of Carolina was no different in principle than all of the other charters to date. It was designed to lay out the bounds of government as well as govern the practical implementation of a colonial system that is located so far from the nexus of power in England. Now, a quick note on names so this entire thing doesn't become a jumbled mess. In between our introduction to Cooper last time and his appearance today, he was named the first Earl of Shaftesbury. So, congratulations to him for the promotion. In the sources, as is customary, Cooper goes from being called Anthony Cooper to Shaftesbury. So, in order to stick with normal convention from this point forward, I'm going to begin referring to Cooper as Shaftesbury. Shaftesbury, wanting to lay out a constitution, got to work. Alongside him on this project was his secretary, a 39-year-old named John Locke. Locke is ultimately going to become an absolute giant in the history of the political theory and philosophy of the United States. However, at 39 years old, Locke is still far away from becoming that giant, as his own personal star really won't begin to rise until the Glorious Revolution. As we move towards the American Revolution, we are going to spend an increasing amount of time with men like Locke, as well as others, who are going to help form the political philosophy that is going to help instruct the founding fathers in just how to set up our government. However, that is all for the future. Right now, John Locke is just the 39-year-old secretary for Shaftesbury. 
With the stated goal being seeking a better settlement of government, Locke got to work on the project. I'm going to spend the next several minutes making our way through the Constitution and discussing the bigger points of it. As always, I think there is something to be gained by looking at the preamble of any Constitution. Not because it gives any real information about how the society functions or the rules that govern it, but rather that it acts as something of a snapshot in time. It captures that moment in a people's history and it tells you what they were striving to be. The fundamental constitution of Carolina begins, Our sovereign lord the king having, out of his royal grace and bounty granted unto us the province of Carolina, with all the royalties, properties, jurisdictions, and privileges of County Palatine, as large and ample as the County Palatine of Durham, with other great privileges, for the better settlement of the government of said place, and establishing the interest of the Lord Proprietors with equality and without confusion, and that the government of this province may be made most agreeable to the monarchy under which we live and of which the province is a part and that we may avoid erecting a numerous democracy. We, the lords and proprietors of the province aforesaid, have agreed to this following form of government, to be perpetually established amongst us, unto which we do oblige ourselves, our heirs and successors, in the most binding ways that can be devised. So let's begin unpacking the information that we can get out of this. Of course, like so many charters, it starts with a note that they were going to be loyal subjects. Beyond that, the first thing that they talk about in the document is the County Palatine of Durham. The first question we must therefore ask is, what is a Palatine County? A Palatine County is simply an area that is ruled by a nobleman. The word Palatine itself is in reference to the Palatine Hill in Rome, the traditional center of imperial palaces in ancient Rome. As in Rome, where the most important men would often live in the Palatine Hill area, the Palatine counties are simply those areas that are ruled by noble landlords. The second thing that we catch on is the part about avoiding erecting a numerous democracy. Now, we know that John Locke is going to become one of the pillars of American political philosophy. This makes it sound strange when he mentions that he wants to avoid erecting a numerous democracy. Likely, the reference being made here is that he wanted to avoid having an overly complex system of government, which is actually kind of ironic considering, as we will see, the fundamental constitution of Carolina would go down as one of the most complex and burdensome charters ever devised in the American colonies. As we are going to see as we move forward through the document, surprisingly, the fundamental constitution of Carolina is very feudal in nature. Locke was not seeking a government in this case that it was overbroad or based upon the representation of the many, but rather something that was small and held in the hands of the eight proprietors and their descendants. To begin on the Constitution itself, it lays out the structure of government and how the power would pass through the generations. The first article of the Constitution says, The eldest of the Lord's proprietors shall be Palatine, and upon the decease of the Palatine, the eldest of the seven surviving proprietors shall always succeed him. Already, just one article into the Constitution, it is clear that this system is going to be very futile in how it operates. The eight Lord Proprietors are the landowners, and their oldest heir will control the land following their death. This is no different than the nobility systems that were common in England and throughout Europe during the Middle Ages. Therefore, we now know that at the very top of the pyramid that is the fundamental Constitution of Carolina, you have our eight Proprietors. 
They are the ones standing over everything else, and all power flows vertically down from them. What follows below our eight proprietors is a confusing and complex system that we are going to jump in and explore. The proprietors and their heirs are then entitled to do things that you would expect in any of the colonies, such as naming others to be public officials. It is interesting to note, however, that this decision was left up to the Lord Proprietors and is not something that was, on its face, going to be voted on by the freemen of the colony, as we see elsewhere throughout colonial North America. The entirety of Carolina was then to be divided into counties, with each county consisting of eight seigneuries, as well as eight barony, and four precincts. Each precinct is then going to make up six colonies. Now, eight counties make sense. We have eight Lord Proprietors. Therefore, it makes sense why we would divide Carolina into eight equal parts. All of the seigneury and barony and colonies would consist of 12,000 acres. The seigneuries would be our eight proprietors. The baronies are going to be made up of the nobility. So what happens if one of these eight great proprietary families happens to die out? Well, no worry. After enough time, specifically after the second biannual parliament, after the vacancy of the remaining seven proprietors, they can choose a new proprietor to join their ranks. This ensures that the balance of eight proprietors always remains. So then the question shifts to who becomes the new proprietor in that case. Judging from the wording in the Constitution, it says that any landgrave may be chosen. Now, you may be asking at this point, what is a landgrave? A landgrave translates roughly to count. So, attention would likely turn to the baronies for the new proprietor. Littered throughout the entire Constitution are mentions and reminders of the various hereditary powers that are being passed down here. Everything here from the proprietors to the baronies are all going to be consisting of hereditary titles. Without taking you through all the pain of reciting it here, several sections of the Constitution are concerned with making sure that they keep that balance and dealing with what happens if there are deaths amongst the noble families. After all, if one of these major families dies off, there is a serious concern that the colony will lose the balance that it depends on to properly function. This system, of course, is going to need an overly complex legal system to go with the massive apparatus that makes up the structure of government. And John Locke doesn't disappoint. The seigneury, barony, and each individual manor has the power to hold court leet for both criminal and civil cases. A court leet is a court that an individual baron and manor could call to legally conduct hearings as necessary. If you have watched Game of Thrones, Think of how each individual house can conduct court proceedings. That is, for all intents and purposes, a court leet. Now, speaking of manners, of course, there is going to be a highly regulated system there as well. Each manor had to be between 3,000 and 12,000 acres and must exist entirely in a single colony. However, it should be noted that owning at least 3,000 acres alone does not make for a manor. Instead, the grant of manor must be given by the Palatine's court. So 3,000 acres is a requirement, but alone, it was not enough to make you a manor. This next part is a quick shout out to my fellow lawyers out there and will probably give you some amount of anxiety. Section 18 and 19 of the Constitution states that the signories and baronies can only grant estates to exceed three lives or 21 years. Likewise, 
the lord of a manor may sell or dispose of his manor. However, no grant or any part of the grant can be good for a period longer than three lives or 21 years. Now, I have zero interest in researching further into this. However, based on the timing of everything, I would suspect that this is the first time that the rule against perpetuities appears in colonial America. So thanks a ton for that, John Locke. Moving along, Landgraves and other leaders were afforded the right to a jury trial conducted by their peers. Among the courts, there would be eight Supreme Courts, with the foremost court being the Palatine's Court. Each court would have a proprietor at the head with six counselors under him. Under the other seven courts, excluding the Palatine Court, there would be a college of 12 assistants who would be chosen from the local nobility. However, four of the 12 were to come from the commons, which meant members of parliament, sheriffs, or justices of the county court. Younger sons of the proprietors could also fill this role. It is worth noting that the proprietor's court could also overturn criminal penalties, making them essentially a court of last appeal. There was to be a parliament in the colony that would be assembled by balloting. This is not surprising as the entire model is based upon medieval English models where parliament did hold a critical role. However, despite there being a parliament, it is clear that the real power of this government was going to lie in the nobility. I could spend several hours going through all the various parts of the Constitution and explaining the structure of each court. The Constitution is exceptionally long and detailed. There is little left to chance here, and what emerges is a complex bureaucratic system that would always prove to be top-heavy in its nature. There are, for example, a lot of sections of the Constitution explaining the various departments, the ministers of those departments, who are generally just the proprietors, the number of assistants and counselors under that minister, and finally the specific roles of each department. However, for the sake of keeping this episode from getting any more overwhelming and frankly boring, I'm going to go ahead and stop here on the structure. The Constitution itself is a fascinating read because it is so radically different from anything else that we see appear in the American colonies during this time. This is a radical departure from, say, the fundamental orders of Connecticut. Simply put, this is a legitimate attempt at establishing a feudal-style government in colonial America. I'm going to go ahead and provide a link on the website to a copy of the text of the Fundamental Constitution of Carolina, and I do encourage you to open it up and skim through it. It's not exactly fun nor light reading, but due to its unique nature, not to mention that John Locke was probably the chief author, it is at least worth a look. Before we move on to look at the legacy and actual implementation of the Fundamental Constitution of Carolina, I want to take a few minutes to look at a handful of the basic rights in the document, as well as some of the more controversial parts of the Constitution. To begin, I want to look at Article 97 of the Constitution, which deals with matters of religious tolerance. That section reads, But since the natives of that place, who will be concerned in our plantation, are utterly strangers to Christianity, whose idolatry, ignorance, or mistakes give us no right to expel or use them ill, and those who remove from other parts to plant, there will unavoidably be of different opinions concerning matters of religion, the liberty whereof they will expect to have allowed them, and it will not be reasonable for us, on this account, to keep them out, that civil peace may be maintained amid diversity of opinion, and our agreement and compact with all men may be duly and faithfully observed. The violation whereof, upon the presence soever, cannot be without great offense to Almighty God, 
and great scandal to the true religion which we profess. And also that Jews, heathens, and other dissenters from the purity of Christian religion may not be scared and kept at a distance from it, but by having an opportunity of acquainting themselves with the truth and reasonableness of its doctrines and the peaceableness and inoffensiveness of its professors, may, by good usage and persuasion and all those convincing methods of gentleness and meekness suitable to the rule and design of the gospel, be one ever to embrace and receive the truth, therefore, any seven or more persons agreeing in any religion shall constitute a church or profession, to which they shall be given some name to distinguish it from others. I know there is a lot to unpack here, however, this is really one of the more interesting things in the entire Constitution, as it lays out a huge amount of information regarding the colony's view on religion. First, it accepts the fact that the Indians are not Christian. However, more importantly, it prohibits the use of that fact as justification for improper treatment, or for the English to remove them from their lands. In fact, the Constitution goes one step further and discusses the importance of maintaining civility despite a diversity of opinions. Going further, the Constitution would take a softer stance than was normal at the time towards Jews and heathens, which probably means atheists, as well as other dissenters. The hope in writing this was that by allowing such tolerance, it would allow these groups an opportunity to see the power of the Christian religion in action and would hopefully lead these outsiders into the flock. Unsurprisingly, the official religion of the colony was the Church of England. Well, not explicitly stated, I think there is likely more at hand in this case than just pure concern with religious tolerance. In regard to the native tribes, the last thing that anybody wants to do is recreate the 1622 Jamestown Massacre. Knowing that the initial population of Carolina is going to make the first colonists vulnerable to Indian aggression, it would be a wise policy to make sure that the colonists are doing all they can, initially at least, to keep the Indians in the region happy. Attempts at forced conversion or using religion as a defense for harsh treatment at the hands of the English was not going to do anybody any favors. Regarding the provision protecting Jews, heathens, and other dissenters, I think there is likely some desire here to quickly grow the population of the colony. Sure, there is tolerance up in Rhode Island, however, even now that remains more of a fringe colony. Carolina had no interest in remaining on the fringe of colonial life. By creating a place where people like Jews and atheists could go, they could open up real opportunity for Carolina to quickly grow their population. The saying is largely true that there is safety in numbers. Jews and atheists might be a risk to the moral goodness of the colony, however, they certainly would be a nice check against Indians and Spanish aggression. Plus, once these outside groups are exposed to the much more powerful Church of England, the hope is that they would quickly convert over to Christianity. Certainly, peer pressure would help with this. Either way, it is going to be a win-win for the English in Carolina. The colony would always be a majority Christian, However, the toleration of other religions paved the way for more steady and quick population growth. After all, as we have seen over and over again, larger populations often equal more stability in a young colony. In regards to free speech, it is interesting to note Article 103 of the Constitution, which states that no person whatsoever shall speak anything in their religious assembly irreverently or seditiously of the government or governors or of state matters. This makes sense as well. The main place of gathering in the colony is going to be the church. 
it is a pretty universal thing throughout the English colonies that the church is the center of the social world. There's going to be any one place where political dissatisfaction would really catch on like wildfire, it would be in religious assemblies. By banning seditious speech regarding the government in those places, it provides a safeguard for the proprietors and the nobility. This limitation is going to go a long way towards limiting any kind of seditious speech against the government. Well, relative amounts of religious tolerance are a positive step. There is no denying that the Constitution takes a harsh stance towards slaves. According to Article 110, every freeman of Carolina shall have absolute power and authority over his Negro slaves of what opinion or religion soever. This is a very clear statement of the power that a slave owner held over his slaves. Despite a more lenient approach towards native populations, those feelings did not extend to slaves. The fundamental constitution of Carolina is obviously different from how the other charters in colonial America looked. So how did it work in principle? Well, actually, it didn't really work all that well. There are several problems with the Constitution that were always going to make it hard to put into effect. First, the entire structure of the government was extremely complex. Aside, however, from just the complexity of the government, the bigger problem is going to be the sheer number of people that it was going to require to make the government work. Go back to what we were talking about just a few moments ago. The huge number of baronies and landgraves and manor holders and assistants and so on and so forth. This government required a huge number of people just to make the system function. Now, for what it's worth, Locke and Shaftesbury seem to have recognized that there was going to be an insufficient population initially to make it work. In order to deal with this problem, there was a set of temporary laws put in place that would restrict the size of the baronies until there was sufficient population to support the full-sized system. By the time 1671 rolled around, the population of the colony was still numbered in the hundreds, far less than what was going to be necessary for the fundamental constitution to function. A decade later, the government was still struggling just to find its footing. At this point, one of the biggest problems was that the proprietors did want the government to be legitimate. The best method at gaining legitimacy is to have the people ratify the form of government. However, this ultimately is something that would prove to be much more difficult in reality. The colonists in Carolina were less than anxious to give up their sovereignty to some absentee landlords. Recall the anger in Virginia over the shareholders being back in England. Well, in this system, not only are the shareholders back in England, but they are essentially all powerful. This makes ratification of the Constitution difficult logistically. Ultimately, it is this that is going to keep the Constitution from ever really being implemented in any meaningful way. We will discuss this more in the future, but the proprietors are not going to end up establishing an American feudal system. By the end of the 1720s, seven of the eight proprietors would give up the game and sell their shares back to England as Carolina transitioned into a crown colony. In the end, the government proposed here by Locke and Shaftesbury was always going to prove burdensome to implement in the American colonies. What Locke was presenting here was not necessarily something ancient that he was trying to make work, though he was basing it on a system that had been so successful for such a long time in England. Locke and Shaftesbury were not seeking to blow up the existing systems or even harken back to something older necessarily, 
but rather they wanted to put into place a more streamlined version of what had already existed in England. The failure of the system is due in large part to the failure of the colony to gain the people necessary to make the government viable. Despite the attempts of religious tolerance to boost numbers, it just wasn't going to be enough. Beyond that, few people had interest in moving to Carolina in order to be members of the nobility. Life was better in England, and leaving that for what was still essentially the wilderness just was not that appealing of an idea. This aside, however, the fundamental constitution of Carolina is a fascinating thing to look at in American colonial history. First, it is a system that is so radically different from anything else we see emerge in the colonies. Even if full implementation was never realized, the constitution clearly is something far different than we see anywhere else. Beyond that, however, it is also important to consider the fundamental constitution in the scope of the greater body of work by John Locke. His most influential work, A Treatise of Two Governments, is still 20 years away at this point. When we come back to John Locke in the future, when we're looking at the origins of political philosophy in the United States, we are going to look at his far more influential works that would ultimately influence the course of American democracy. However, we are going to be able to reference back to this episode and see how Locke's beliefs and ideas had evolved over the coming two decades. Okay, so with that, I think we are ready to set aside Carolina as well as set aside our attempts to move through a feudal system. I promise you all, this is the only feudal system that we are going to see pop up in American history, so we are not going to be talking much in the future about baronies. Next time, we are going to start moving through the turbulent years that are going to make up the rest of the 1600s. Over the decades to come, revolts and insurrections are going to break out all throughout the colonies. To start this journey, we are going to head to the New Netherland and plot the course of events that are going to turn this Dutch colony into an English colony. By removing the Dutch from the North American colonies, we are going to see the English gain control of the entire eastern seaboard from Carolina up to modern-day Maine. So, I will leave you with that for this week. I appreciate you all listening, and I will see you back here in two weeks' time as we begin the transition of New Netherland into New York.